back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we chat to a scientist and find out why on earth they do what they're compelled to do. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by paleontologist and invertebrate zoologist Russell Bicknell. Russell, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. <laughs> now, as much as I appreciate your presence here, shouldn't you be writing? <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's a good question. I, I do have a thesis to hand in in, in three months' time. Um, rather coincidentally, a lot of my research has been published. So there's not that much of a push for me to sort of turn my work into papers right now. It's already all done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am, though, in the process of putting together the introduction and the conclusion chapters of my thesis. Yeah. There is that. So if you can get all these papers published, that's a great sort of smack in the face to thesis reviewers, because they can't really say anything. Then they get. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so normally, if you write a thesis, it's all these chapters of essentially research papers that reviewers can then comment back on and say, change this, change this. But if they're all published, they can't really say anything. Yeah, I'm in a particularly good spot in that regard. Mm. Uh, most commonly when you do a thesis by publication uh, you'll have one or two published papers the requirement is Mm. at least one published paper Uh, and then you'll have another three through to however many that is basically fodder for reviewers Um, in my case they'll have the introduction and the conclusion to go to town (laughs) on but the meat of the work has already been peer reviewed so there is literally nothing they can do (laughs) really so no um, published chapters you're, you're hoping that is exactly the case right um, I've got a few more in review right now which would make nice supplementary files <laughs> but uh, yeah the bulk of it's already done so I guess you're tied up with the important decisions about you know what color you're gonna bind it in when it's finished <laughs> well I'm currently thinking pink and fluffy um, right. yeah because you know that'll look really good on my supervisor's wall um, <laughs> but yes, it is an important thing to consider, I suppose, is how pretty it looks. You, you do know that I did mine in hot pink, right? Oh, I, I did not know that, but that is, that is stunning. I love it. <laughs> well, it turns out I found out later, it's technically not allowed. <laughs> Apparently universities, okay. and it differs between each university, but they will have guidelines as to what colors you're allowed to have the physical bind copy of your thesis in. Okay. I didn't realize, and I don't think Macquarie Uni realized <laughs> that they had these guidelines because they they accepted it and it's fine and it's in the library. And, and then later on, someone sent me a link saying, "Have you seen this?" To the thesis guidelines, I had to be like blue and maroon. Oh. Or, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the the story behind the pink and fluffy is uh, at my old university, uh, Victoria University of Wellington. We had have quite a prestigious academic mm. um, who literally had his, an entire wall of his office were just covered in theses, that, yeah. that many students. And one of them was this really, really thick, pink and fluffy thing. And every time I walked into his office, that is the first thing your eye is drawn to. It's impossible to see anything else on that wall except this furry bit of work. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that kind of interested me. And I've not been told otherwise that I can't do this yet. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't ask for permission. I mean, just do it. Exactly. Assume that whoever's signing forms and stamping things that day just goes, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the hope right now. 
Well, I can put you in touch with a binder that is very good, does good custom colors. Beautiful. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and have you decided on a title? Yes. So the current title is Studies of Cambrian and Recent Predation. Okay. That's good and generic enough. Yes. That it can cover everything. Yes. Good. <laughs> that was the goal. All right. Well, I think you always start a th- a thesis thinking it's going to be about this specific thing and then the work you does you, you do goes off in 20 different directions and your title ends up being the biology of <laughs> things things <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i love yes. seeing the theses that are just totally di- different things it'll be like the feeding ecology and also micro satellite <laughs> diversity of some crab and also a slug <laughs> 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 yes, the um, well, the original work that I was supposed to do for my thesis uh, was looking at the very early evolution of predation in the fossil record. Mm. Um, so looking at the Cambrian explosion, uh, when things got weird and funky. However, uh, during the course of my three years, what I realised that a lot of, I realised that a lot of work on horseshoe crabs, which was part of my work, hadn't actually been done. And so I basically went off on a tangent, kind of broadly related to what I'm supposed to be doing, (laughs) uh, and bashed out a few papers and made my thesis more about recent predation as well as fossil predation. Mm -hmm. And so we figured this title, which is short and sweet and snappy, won't make the VC gag when they read it out on graduation (laughs) day, would be fine and does accurately cover what I'm actually talking about. So it was always looking at predation... In the Cambrian in general, as opposed to a specific group uh. <laughs> of, of animals? Well, the original focus was on, I suppose, three main groups and three records of predation. Mm. So looking at uh, what we consider shell-crushing predators or durophages, we think the first arose in the Cambrian, and we found evidence for that. Uh, then looking at drill holes in the Cambrian, so some of the oldest examples of basically making a hole in something and then eating it from the inside out. Oh. It's just pretty cool. <laughs> and then looking at trilobite predation, so specifically using uh, Australian trilobites from the Emu Bay Shale on Kangaroo yeah. Island, comparing these to some material from Canada as well. So basic question, Cambrian explosion for us non-paleontologists. It's a fun time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Good so times. the... <laughs> The Cambrian explosion is the term that is used to describe a very, very rapid uh, diversification evolutionary event. So before the uh, the Cambrian, the pre-Cambrian, we don't really have all that much evidence of complex ecosystems. Um, The Ediacaran is just before the Cambrian, that's sort of where stuff starts to get interesting. But in the Cambrian is where we actually see marine ecosystems that are very, very similar to what we see today, but with organisms that just make no sense. <laughs> so this is looking at fossil records. So before the Cambrian, the critters we find in fossils are sort of simple, squishy things. Yeah. Is I mean, that right? I think every Ediacaran person just cringed. <laughs> uh, the fact that I agreed to that, but that's... Let's deal with it. <laughs> that's more or less it. So we don't see any real evidence for predation or and complex organismal interactions before the Cambrian. Uh, anything that was alive in the Ediacaran was basically something that lived on the seafloor and just sort of ate lichen. 
And we so think. the Cambrian critters are, I guess, the trilobites, the classic example. They're these hard shelled crustacean looking things. Mm. Is that why we then, essentially, why we see evidence of predation? Because there's hard stuff to fossilize? Yeah. Um, the majority of the fossil record of predation is on shells mm. or bones, basically stuff that actually can preserve fairly commonly in the fossil record. Uh, trilobites and bivalves and other things that have what we call biomineralized shells are very, very good at recording records of predation uh, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, they don't tend to be removed out of the fossil record, so they're built and they preserve particularly well, but also their, their armor is really, really good for preserving injuries. Mm. And is it easier to tell what's an injury? Because fossils, I always look at fossils and they look pretty bunged up. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> how do you well, tell it's not someone being a bit too eager with a pickaxe? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. um, the short answer is it comes down to what you're looking at. Yeah. Uh, so in the case of the emu Bay shale material in South Australia... Uh, the fossils are so exceptionally well preserved they're preserved in such fine detail that you can look at a trilobite and you could basically pull out anything that looks different, that doesn't Mm. look normal Um, injuries usually cover two or three sections of the exoskeleton, so segments Mm. um, and they more often than not show signs of some kind of recovery, so like a calloused edge Yeah. Uh, but that being said, as you go further uh, or younger into the fossil record, trilobites, we don't really know of that many that have any kind of injuries sort of beyond the Silurian. And at the point that we, they have gone extinct, we really don't have any information about them. Hmm. So it comes down to the preservation. I guess I never really thought about it. I mean, the research that I've done in the past is it involves sticking out like plasticine frogs and then coming back a couple of days later and seeing what teeth marks are in them. <laughs> And it's really exciting because you never get to see this predation event happening. You just have the the carnage afterwards <laughs> and you just kind of left to imagine what happened. And that's like that, but ramped up by being a couple of million years ago. Half a billion in the case of the Cambrian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> more, more than a couple of million, sadly. Um, but what you described just then is exactly the issue that we have. So we have records that of, of obvious predation. Like, we don't think trilobites walked around without exoskeletons bumping into things and causing Mm. themselves damage. So the injuries that we see more than likely represent predation, but we don't know what the predator is. Mm. We can suggest based on associated fossils. Mm. Uh, So those who are familiar with the Cambrian explosion will know of an organism called Nomlacaris. Really, really, really big beastie of the Cambrian Ocean. Had some pretty gnarly... Uh, I suppose grabbing arms, frontal appendages. And it's been hypothesized that this thing was what was doing the majority of the damage. Mm. But we simply don't have any conclusive evidence to show this. So when we go ahead and talk about predation, we need to be quite careful in how we actually discuss it. Mm. Because at the end of the day, it is hypothetical. We have no confirming evidence that it is these things. Yeah. I think Anomalocaris is famous enough that even I kind of know what it is. (laughs) It kind of looks a, like a, a sausage sandwich with claws and something, you know. It's <laughs> yeah, it's um, <laughs> kind of like a cuttlefish sort of crossed with, I don't know, a scorpion? 
yeah. is probably the way I describe it with a, a mouth that's oval. Kind of stocky eyes, yeah. almost, yeah. <laughs> Weird animal. We have no modern analogue similar to the thing. So that's why we can't actually conclude whether or not it was capable of doing the damage that it could. So, in terms of modern analogues, there is one thing that you work on that does have a very obvious modern analogue. Horseshoe crabs. Are they Cambrian-y as well? So, my theory is that horseshoe crabs do have a Cambrian origin. Mm -hmm. However, we haven't yet found a Cambrian specimen of these things. Okay. Uh, The oldest known horseshoe crab-like things... Are from the Ordovician. So, in terms of time scales, you have the Cambrian, which is the base of complex life, followed by the Ordovician, which is things kind of get slightly more normal, but still with weird <laughs> things happening. Nor- normal quotation marks. Yeah, yeah like, like what we're used to. <laughs> approximately normal, whatever a normal ecosystem actually looks like. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Is, when does a Devonian come along? Is that long after? So you have the Cambrian, Ordovician, the Silurian, and the Devonian. Um, to give you an idea, Devonian is, I suppose, that is the fourth major time bin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, we have a couple slightly more common, commonly known ones, the uh, Carboniferous yeah. and the Permian, after which all things basically went extinct. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ordovician and Silurian, are, do they have any, uh, you know, mascot species? Because <laughs> Cambrian, it's all about you know, the, the trilobites and things. The Devonian's fishes. Mm-hmm. Um, probably sea scorpions. Oh. So things that are, are called Eurypterids. Yeah. Um, uh, well, they arose in, I believe, the Ordovician, and by the Silurian, they diversified and become probably the, the biggest predators of the time. That and uh, cephalopods. Oh, all right. Yeah, I think those two are the main big beasties of yeah. the ocean at that point. So horseshoe crabs came along the Ordovician, and they've been around ever since. Yes. So how long's that? Uh, the deposit that they're known from is okay, 480 million years. They've been around for at least that long, <laughs> which is quite a while. Yeah. Um, basically almost the entire length of complex life. Um, and I, I suppose it's fair to say that what we would consider a horseshoe crab in the Ordovician isn't what we would typically describe as a horseshoe crab. Uh, it has the base construction of one, so it has mm. a, a domed looking head part and a tapering looking bottom part and a tail uh, but an actual modern day horseshoe crab it looks very very different from this mm. thing um, to give you an idea, the actual head part doesn't at all look like a horseshoe, which is <laughs> from where horseshoe crabs get their name um, and the bottom part of it, it's got segments which modern day horseshoe crabs don't have at all Okay, so we're always taught you know, in undergrad biology that horseshoe crabs haven't changed in so many zillions of years. <laughs> you're, you're saying that's not necessarily the case? That is bollocks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Good. I love to, it. To I'm glad to bluntly. hear. Um, it, it is fair to say that uh, from the Jurassic, uh, horseshoe crabs that are preserved about 150 million years ago are 
morphologically similar to what we see today. Mm -hmm. They're much smaller than what we see today, but they have similar features. Uh, That being said, there is also quite a range of organisms um, after the end Permian extinction of the Triassic. So things we would consider horseshoe crabs in the Triassic are very, very different from what we see today. Mm. So after the end Permian, this group of organisms that survived an extinction event that killed off 95% of all things ever diversified. They went completely nuts. And so the shape and size and I suppose general ecology of horseshoe crabs after the end Permian really, really went bananas. And it was only after that that you, we converged upon the the shape that we would consider a standard horseshoe crab. Right. But even then, they've gotten a lot larger since mm. uh, dinosaurs wandering around with them. I feel like you always hear about fossil invertebrates doing the opposite. They seem we always hear about giant dragonflies and giant millipedes and stuff. <laughs> and you only get the tiny little stupid ones today. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, so, through time, there is, I suppose, two major directions that things can go. They can either go big or they can go small. <laughs> yeah. uh, they don't generally stay, tend to stay the same size. Um, changes in ecology, changes in paleoecology tend to drive something to change. Mm. Um, and you're right. Uh, so, you get, we have massive dragonflies. Uh, in terms of sea scorpions, they thought are pretty small, and they got pretty damn big, like larger than a human. <laughs> uh, <laughs> horseshoe crabs, though, um, yeah, they, they started off as you know millimeter to centimeter scale things. Yeah. Survived every single mass extinction that we know of, um, and now today are a lot larger than they were in the fossil record. And I believe that simply reflects the fact that they were able to capitalize on a lot of ecological niches that were left barren after various mass extinctions. Mm-hmm. No, we should clarify, they're not crabs. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, are, what are horseshoe crabs? This is the bane of my existence. <laughs> um, this, isn't, this is why you shouldn't be a horseshoe crab researcher, because everyone thinks you study crabs. So crabs, in the most uh, literal sense, are crustaceans. Horseshoe crabs are not crustaceans. Mm-hmm. Um, they... The, but they live in the ocean and they're shelly things. Yes. <laughs> so they do have a similar shape to crabs, sort of. Um, and their legs are of similar morphology to crabs, but they're not actually crabs at all. Uh, they are more closely related to spiders and scorpions. Mm-hmm. So in terms of their evolutionary family, crabs are... True crabs are basically like distant cousins, whereas spiders and scorpions are brother and sister slash cousins mm-hmm. and so have you ever seen one yes. in real life I have I've, right. um, I've been to the states twice um, the last couple of years across my PhD and on both occasions I had the opportunity to interact with live horseshoe crabs uh, the first time probably most interesting was when I visited New Hampshire which is a state that basically no one's ever heard of because why would you ever go there? Uh, Hello to all our listeners from New Hampshire. I, uh, Let apologies. us know if, if we have any. <laughs> yeah, please do. I apologize in advance. There's one big city in, in New Hampshire, um, and that's about it. There are a couple of universities, uh, one of which I visited. 
Now, uh, horseshoe crab research in the States is relatively large because horseshoe crabs have something called blue blood, mm. uh, which is used in medicine. Um, however, they're also currently being subject to what could almost be considered an extinction event because of humans, because <laughs> of the blue blood. So research has gone into trying to understand and help these things survive. And the university of them is, uh, that I visited, which is the University of New Hampshire, uh, has a small research group of people who are interested in understanding the ecology of these organisms, for the most part, in situ. So mm. in live conditions. You just used the name of the podcast, everyone I, take a drink. I did. <laughs> Down your whiskey. <laughs> uh, and what I did when I visited them was I we got to pull various specimens out of their living conditions and we were interested in understanding how hard they can bite things. So we basically subject these lovely animals to basically being forced to bite down on a force transducer, which is basically measures how hard you can do something, uh, to give us an understanding of actually how good these things were are at predation. Mm-hmm. Um, during my visit there, though, I did also go swimming with these things, and i got to say, uh, they are the strangest animals that I have ever spent any time with. Um, they... When let loose in the water, they basically burrow under any kind of substrate and then just try to get away as fast as they possibly can. Mm. Yet when you pull them out of the water, they can't move very much at all just because they're so <laughs> damn heavy. So you didn't see them crawling up on the sand to do their stuff? You, no. You went looking for them in the water? So when I arrived, it was actually after their massive spawning event. So mm. on a yearly basis, horseshoe crabs uh, en masse come up onto land to reproduce and I actually arrived about a month and a half after that event so sadly I didn't get to see that happen. <laughs> I still remember it would have been I don't know second year biology in university when they whipped out the horseshoe crabs out of whatever chemical they were kept in that had been <laughs> sitting in a bucket for 40 years and yeah it was this otherworldly experience because I've heard of these things which seemed like mythical creatures and all of a sudden there's you know it was dead but it was still a real one there in front of me and yeah they are kind of unlike anything else around there's a totally different vibe about them and i guess it's really cool for you as a someone that's interested in fossil records you know unlike other paleontologists that just kind of have to imagine what their critters were like you have these modern representatives of them, so you can actually see them in action. Yeah, um, you're you're totally right. They are just different. <laughs> like they are the inspiration for the facehugger in the Alien films, uh, which for me really just summarizes how weird they are. And they just they they do look like they should have died out when the dinosaurs died out. Yeah. Like they, they don't look like they fit into any kind of modern ecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like a half a coconut with an antennae. They're a, they're <laughs> I think the, the Simpsons description of a dog wearing a helmet is probably the best that I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and they do really look like a dog wearing a helmet with like a pointy tail. That's well, like the whole dog and have to fit under the helmet. A little yeah. just to get an accurate <laughs> pre- representation. Yeah, it's not like a great day. It's like, yeah. I don't know, a chihuahua 
With a long tail. With a motorcycle helmet on. Yeah, yeah. with a motorcycle helmet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what they look like. And with yeah, the eyes on the outside of the motorcycle helmet. <laughs> yes, with the <laughs> eyes on top of the motorcycle helmet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the more you describe it, the, the, the stranger they, you really realise they are. But you're talking about doing research into their mouth parts and how their mouth works. Oh, gosh, that's, that's not the kettle of fish. Describe... The, is it a mouth? I mean, it's a mouth. <laughs> I mean, but in, the most, <laughs> in the most broad sense, absolutely, it's a mouth. Food goes in. Food... <laughs> so, they, <laughs> they have teeth on their legs. <laughs> yes. Um, and... They basically shovel anything they can possibly get, which is, and I've looked at their guts, 90% sand <laughs> <laughs> into basically a, a hole, mm. um, which is surrounded by uh, these legs that have teeth. And they use their legs that have teeth to crush up whatever they can get and then literally shovel it into this, this mouth-like thing. So it's their legs that do the chewing, probably is the best way to describe it. Um, and the whole just kind of, it's just where the food goes. So to, to chew, they kind of have to, I don't know, do a little dance? What? Um, <laughs> How does that work? Without having a video, it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> but like, imagine, uh, like, knocking your elbows together. That's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> It's it, or, or like knocking your knees together. That's sort of how they chew. They they bring the uh, the spiky bits of their legs. They basically push them together, um, and that's basically how they, they they chew things. All right. So they've got so there's ten legs. Uh, they have they've got <laughs> eight what we would consider walking legs. Yeah. They've got two. Like considered pushing legs, so yeah. sort of like when they want to go into, they want to glide, they push themselves off. They have two sets or t- two um, genital bits, and then there's another five breathing apparatus. Okay, <laughs> okay. five sets, so ten. Uh, yeah, they got a lot of legs. <laughs> they, well, yeah, they got a lot of appendages. I suppose is the best way to put yeah. that. In terms of legs, I suppose you could count ten of them. Yeah. And they kind of radiate out from the middle like a face hugger. Yes. And the mouth is a hole in the middle of all those legs. Exactly. And they whack all their knees together and that is how they food eat. into their mouth hole. In a nutshell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so, because I work on modern day invertebrates, what I know is that the mouth parts that we look at on an insect are modified little tiny legs. Mm-hmm. Developmentally, their, 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 their mandibles are just little tiny arms on their face. Mm-hmm. So are we thinking that this kind of feeding strategy we see in horseshoe crabs could have been some sort of precursor to you modified appendages as mouth parts later on? Well, in that case, we would sort of be comparing mandibulate mastication with uh, non-mandibulate mastication I'd say it's more accurate to say it's it's simply a different form of eating Um, and as you go back in the fossil record when you first see 
uh, mandibles in the way that you were describing, mm. uh, they arose from a completely different evolutionary line. Alright. Yeah, I'd say so. So we had mandibles point, well before these guys came along. Actually, they arose at about the same time. Alright. Um, the uh, chewing with your legs thing, uh, we think, <laughs> we think arose in the Cambrian, yeah. um, or at least some research that I did suggests it did. Um, and chewing like or well, with mandible-like structures arose at a very similar point in the Cambrian as well. Mm. There's different evolutionary lines. All right. Now I want to go back to talking about their crazy blood. <laughs> So it's called blue blood because it's blue. Yes. Why? What? What? Why? What's so important about it? <laughs> so as opposed to being iron-rich, horseshoe crab blood is copper-rich, mm. which gives it that blue color. And it's, in fact, in, in a lot of chelicerates, um, which is what horseshoe crabs are, so chelicerates are, also include spiders and scorpions and things like that, they all have blue blood. Mm. Um, except in the case of a horseshoe crab, because it's so large, there's just a lot of it. Mm. Just, and if you upsize the scorpion by 20, 30 times, you'd have a similar amount. You'd have a crazy animal, but you'd have a similar <laughs> amount of blue blood. Now, blue blood is uh, very good in identifying what we call stuff called endotoxins, bad things to have in solution. Mm. Uh, and hospitals often want to make sure that the solution that they're going to give to patients doesn't have anything particularly bad in it because you don't want people dying mm. too much. <laughs> A little bit's okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit population control. Um, so what... Uh, blue blood does is when it's, when it's exposed to any kind of liquid solution if it changes colour uh, you know that whatever is in that solution is particularly bad mm. and needs to be purified so washu crabs are harvested on a yearly basis and their blood is extracted mm. and the reason why they can do this is because uh, the old saying no backbone no problem they don't <laughs> they're not higher uh, invertebrates so they're not like squids or octopus they can't think for themselves inverted commas <laughs> they can think to make that clear um, but because they don't have any real ethical rules around them it's very easy to harvest these things they're so large they're very easy to get a hold of especially during their spawning events they just get put in labs they don't and really run away very fast they're they not. really can't move <laughs> when they're on shore that's it it's yeah. basically game over yeah. yeah no when you say harvested they're not necessarily you know, harvested like a crop they're not killed. No, no. So they're, they're collected alive um, quite often along a, a place in the state. It's called Delaware Bay. It's where the most horseshoe crabs come up. Uh, yeah, just chucked in buckets, taken back to a lab, hooked up to a machine that is a massive needle, more or less, mm. and their, their blood is drained. Mm. How, how much are their bloods drained? Well, not surely not all of it. Close to. Uh, two-thirds uh, is the standard removal procedure. Um, some work that colleagues and myself are trying to do is to reduce that number. Um, if, you re- if you were to take two-thirds of your blood out, you'd die. Yeah. Yeah, right? Vertebrates can't really survive that. Uh, the almost equivalent happens with horseshoe crabs. They get released back into the wild after having two-thirds of their blood removed, and it's basically like putting a, a drunken human in the sea. 
they mm. are unca un really unable to function particularly well and their survival rates aren't that high because of it. Mm. And that's also something I remember being taught in undergrad biology is that they pull these horseshoe crabs up, they bleed them and they're fine, they throw them back in, it takes them a couple of days to recover and they're fine, but that's not necessarily the case either. No, that, that is bollocks. Mm. Um, frankly, removing two thirds of your blood is going to take more than a couple of days to recover. But you're mm. right, they hold on to them for 48 hours, I think, mm. and then put them back in the ocean and just assume it's going to be fine. And mm. it's, it's not. The survival rate of that is not particularly high. And it makes sense. You've taken a lot of their blood out of them. Mm. They just don't function after that. So is this, do you think this is actually a threat then to horseshoe crab populations? It is, in fact, quite a serious threat. Um, so especially within the states where the majority of blue blood is taken, uh, the upshot is a serious has a serious effect on the populations of these things. Mm. You're taking adults, most likely breeding adults, out of their population. You're then subjecting them to you know, getting rid of a lot of their life force, and then you're putting them back in the ocean. Mm. And the result of that is, A, they can't reproduce, which is going to logically affect the population dynamics, but then you're putting them back in a situation where they probably can't recover. They're most likely going to be subject to some form of predation and they won't be able to defend themselves and surely their immune system is totally compromised because absolutely the, the thing that we're using to identify pathogens is also what their body's using to identify pathogens right exactly so they have an open circulatory system mm. uh, which is why their blue blood is so effective and it's why it needs to be effective basically if you had everything on display as a human uh, and anything got into our system we would be severely compromised without some form of high-level defense mechanism. So taking two-thirds of their defense mechanism out of their bodies is going to put them in a situation where if anything gets into their system, it's going to be devastating. So this then presents a problem because we want to conserve animals, right? But these are animals which are part of an industry now and an industry which is sort of directly linked to human medicine, which kind of takes scientific priority a lot of the time. Is anything being done? Can anything be done? Well, uh, short of stop stopping doing it, which mm. is just not going to happen because, as you're right, this is directly linked to humans. Um, some work has gone into trying to synthesize blue blood. Mm -hmm. Stuff made in the lab is seldom ever as good as nature can do it, mm. especially after... Yeah, 480 million years of evolution. <laughs> uh, it's pretty well refined. Mm. Um, so that basically takes that option out. But what uh, colleagues and myself are trying to push is that these animals become the world's first world heritage species. Mm. Which will basically mean that any harvesting will be really, really restricted. They'll be more or less treated in the same way that Stonehenge is treated. Um, which is, I think, pretty awesome. Now, if we are able to get that over the line and they do get accepted as a World Heritage Group, then there will be some fairly heavy constraints on how much sampling happens, and ideally that will allow the populations to recover effectively. So I've just had a great idea. Because mm -hmm. all good conservation programs need a, a PR campaign. Yes. 
These amazing old things with blue blood. Could you hit up the royal family to be the patrons of the Horseshoe Crab <laughs> Conservation Initiative? I, 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 it'd be worth a crack. <laughs> I, I don't know if, if the Queen's going to be overly keen on that. <laughs> um, but, you know, sh- shared interests, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's worth a shot, right? They're, they're existing representatives of uh, old glory days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> An evolutionary hangover, if you will, <laughs> yes. You're right. <laughs> it's worth a go. <laughs> but when you're studying them, and you're looking at their feeding behavior. You're not, you're not just looking at their, their little knees knocking together. You're actually looking at at a physical level how they can move in this way, right? Yes, that's correct. How does you how does one do that? As the Queen would say, <laughs> how doth one study study things. horseshoe crabs? Um. Well, there is. Uh, a few aspects to what I've done, but the, the main answer to your question is not only examining them uh, in life, in the lab, actually, we can film them, uh, but more importantly, we model them biomechanically. Mm. So my work when I went to the States the first time was what involved gathering actual data, actual live data of how effective these things were at chewing. Uh, and this data was related to a biomechanical analysis that I did, which was basically fancy modeling, um, in which I had micro CT scanned a specimen that got shipped to Australia, and then did a whole bunch of fancy analyses that really got my head smacking against the computer screen. <laughs> no joke. Um, and we then output... Uh, I suppose values of how strong we think these things could bite given the micro CT data and the scanning that we did. And you can compare and contrast the actual data from actual bite force experiments with the biomechanical analysis. And what we showed was in this case, uh, we had modeled everything correctly. The values that were output from the fancy biomechanics uh, were on the same magnitude as what we were getting uh, in lab. So you get this micro CT scan. So it's essentially a 3D scan of both. Well, it's, it's also an X-ray scan at the same time. Kind of thing. You get a 3D <laughs> scan of all the inside bits and the outside bits. Yes. So I, I suppose, yeah, when we talk about micro CT, it's best to say it's a fancy X-ray. Yeah. It's a, it's a downsized X-ray for scanning small things. Yeah. Thus the micro. Um, and what we had done uh, was we basically dumped our very, very dead specimen in a bunch of ethanol and iodine, which is something that you shouldn't drink. Um, and we let it sit there for a while, and the iodine got absorbed into the muscles. Uh, so when we were doing the scanning, what we could find is not only the exoskeleton, uh, which has got quite a high density, so it shows up quite nicely in the X-ray, but also the muscle information, which is a lot less dense usually. Um, and after the iodine staining, uh, increases the density. So we had both cuticle and muscle information for our modeling. All right, so you're making like a, what do you call it? It's like a map of all the muscles in this critter's body. Yeah. You can then look at, all right, these muscles are pulling in these particular directions 
the muscles are this big, so we think they're about this strong. Yep. And then, yeah, you calculate how yeah, that's, hard they can bite, really. That's exactly it. Yeah. So we figure out which muscles are involved in chewing. Uh, and that's work that was done in the 70s or 80s. So I basically can say, well, it's muscles, you know, 86 and 87 or whatever number they've been given. Then you look at how big these things are um, in, in your, your x-ray scan. And you get an idea of probably how thick they are, which is uh, can be used as uh, to inform muscle strength. And um, then when you input them into the model, you say the muscles are attached at these points and they're approximately this strong. And then that, after doing some crazy modeling, outputs a number of bite force here. So let, let's not leave people hanging. How hard does a horseshoe crab bite? Nothing. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, they can bite hard enough to crush shell. Yeah. Um, but that said, you can crush a shell between your thumb and your yeah. index finger. It's not that hard. I think the maximum force that we got was the actual live specimen. I think the max we got was about three or four newtons, which is, I don't know, a light pinch. <laughs> to give you an idea. So if you had a live horseshoe crab, you, you don't have to worry about getting bitten. You, you could put your finger in there. And it, it, it would hurt a little bit. <laughs> like, you know, like so it's being pinch. pinched. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're not really that particularly powerful. I mean, that being said, we studied a, a fairly small specimen. Yeah. Um, as they get larger, they obviously have larger muscles and therefore stronger. But I highly doubt there'd be that much force involved. Yeah. So you're work, doing this work here at UNE in the Paleoscience Research Center. Is yes. that what it's called? That's what it's called. And lots of the people in that lab use the same technology, scanning fossils. I imagine you can't get that same amount of information from a fossil. They don't have preserved musculature and stuff, right? Um, for the most part, the answer is no. Uh, in very, very exceptional circumstances, uh, in fact, a paper came out a month ago, uh, which had preserved fossil uh, exoskeleton and a little bit of muscle information. All right. Um, if we look at amber, sometimes we're lucky enough to get that sort of information out of amber. Very rarely. Uh, but the short answer is, yeah, the fossil record simply isn't good enough to preserve that level of detail. Mm. When you're scanning a, a fossil, it's most often a bone because vertebrate people like scanning bones. For some reason, <laughs> all you have is bone. Um, you may have the internal structure of the bone, so to see how much holes it has through it, whether or not it's, it's solid or not. In terms of invertebrate work, when we're scanning things, most invertebrates are preserved basically as, as 2D squishy things. Mm. So scanning that, is, you're not going to get very much out of that. Um, or they're in amber. Mm. So uh, a lot of insects, ants, and flies, mosquitoes are preserved fairly commonly in amber. Mm. And if you're very good at using a, a CT or a micro CT scanner, you can get that kind of information out. That was actually going to be one of my questions about squishy fossils. <laughs> so we have these three dimension. What were once three dimensional organisms? Their fossil remains are essentially flat. Pancake. Oh, yep. Yeah. Is there a way to you know when you do these fancy models? Is there like a inflate function so <laughs> oh I wish oh it made my life so peer review would be a cinch no um, the <laughs> when you reconstruct an organism from 2D slices into 3D yeah uh, you basically need to make a set of assumptions yeah 
you need to use your modern analog to inform how it will look in 3D. Mm-hmm. So when we're choosing our, our modern comparison, we make sure we choose as close to what we're seeing in the fossil record as possible. Yeah. That's why the horseshoe crab is particularly good. And then you look at as many of these 2D flattened fossils as you can to get an idea of different orientations. Mm. And then when you're building your thing, you more or less suggest how thick or how wide you think the actual reconstruction is. Mm. At the end of the day, um, we don't actually have that information. So. Yeah. All right. Now, when you're not doing this research, you're also working here. We're recording this upstairs from the UNE Natural History Museum, where yes. you get the delightful pleasure of working. Are you a, what's your role? Are you a curator? Officially, he's collection manager. Mm-hmm. Um, the curator is uh, Narelle Jerry, who's the overall curator of all UNE collections. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose, yeah, I, I spend well a lot of my time down in, in the museum. Uh, the current role, as it stands, is one of outreach mm-hmm. with UNE Discovery and also one of curation. So with the outreach, what I do is I, I have... Uh, School groups will come to the museum and we'll explore various aspects of natural history. So we'll do scientific drawings, we'll talk about function and form, and we'll get, I get children actually involved in the idea of being a scientist. Mm. So I, I remember when I was going through high school, not that I did much biology, ironically, uh, we didn't really do scientific drawing. It's not really an aspect that's pushed anymore. Mm. And I firmly believe that one way to get someone to appreciate something is by putting them in front of it and telling them to sit and look and stare. Mm. To pull out all of those intricate bits and then to try and put that on paper. Mm. And I've found that's quite successful. A lot of students really appreciate that. Well, older students, the young ones, can't really sit still for very long. <laughs> so, you know, in that case, I put them out in the museum, they run around and they draw other things. Mm. Yeah. How, how's your own drawing skills? Not amazing, sadly. <laughs> I, mean, I, I can I can do it. I can draw. Um, a lot of my work is probably most accurate to say I do reconstructions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with uh, I, I study a myriad of things in the fossil record, but my particular interest, which should surprise no one at this point, is horseshoe crabs. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of my work involves uh, looking at photographs or taking photographs of these things. And then trying to visualize how it will look in the third dimension. Mm-hmm. How domed its exoskeleton will be. Um, if there's any features that aren't preserved in that particular fossil that need to be built into the reconstruction. Um, and I suppose those aspects around it. But my own putting pencil to paper is not amazing, I'll be honest. <laughs> I feel like scientific illustration, it's experiencing this kind of niche resurgence as almost as an art form. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I just don't think it has the support within science that it once did. I think in this day and age, what is uh, most sexy, if you will, is the 3D aspect of it. Mm. So scanning, uh, X-ray scanning, micro CT and CT and MRI, uh, and then reconstructing those scans in the third dimension, that is the renaissance of morphology in the 21st century. Mm. That is the direction that a lot of biology and paleontology, where possible, is going. And there are a few reasons for that, but the main one is because if you have a scan of something, anyone in the world can see that. Mm. 
as long as it's included in your supplementary information. <laughs> if it isn't, then no one can see it. But the point there is that you don't need to visit, I don't know, Moscow or wherever, you know, Zimbabwe to see a specimen. You can be at your computer and you can be looking at the scan or the reconstruction that they've built. Hmm. And that is the direction I think art in science is going. But I think you're right in that sitting and doing this yourself, sitting and looking at an organism drawing it or sculpting it or something that isn't just taking a photo or doing a scan or something is uh, there's an old quote I used to use in lectures that I'm going to completely bugger up because I've even forgotten who said it by some impressionist painter Degas or something had a great quote saying something along the lines of drawing is a refinement of the art of seeing Mm -hmm. and it's essentially that you can sit and look at an organism for hours on end and think you understand its function and structure. But actually sitting there and drawing it, you notice things you would never have noticed otherwise. Little specific things about the particular curve mm-hmm. on its leg or having to sit and count how many spines are on this you know, <laughs> armored appendage or whatever. Yeah. It can only happen by uh, actually sitting and drawing. Yes, no, I completely agree. I think... Uh there's a particular method in paleontology called camera lucida, uh, where basically you sit at a microscope and you draw what is under the microscope. Mm-hmm. And this particular skill was uh, very well used in the early 20th century um, when paleontology was really in its heyday. There were a lot of paleontologists. And the drawings that were made from camera lucida are they are basically artwork. Mm. They are to a ridiculously immaculate detail. Mm. And I do honestly believe that spending that time to look at something, to actually get your eye in, mm. really is the only way that one can truly appreciate anything. Yeah. I just feel like this should be a requirement for theses. <laughs> Everyone should have to sit and draw their study species. I, I think that's it, it, not necessarily a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, we live in a digital age where anyone has, basically anyone has a cell phone with a camera. Yeah. And take a snapshot of whatever the hell you want to. Yeah. And that actually means that you're not paying attention to what's around you. Mm. The reality is the world has become so digital that we don't take the time to take the time. Mm. It's, yeah, it's, it's very easy to take a photo of basically anything. Yeah. And not really focus on those details. Yeah, I, st- I still remember doing it for the praying mantises I was working on. Funnily enough, I needed to make a 3D model of them. <laughs> Couldn't get a specimens to do scans of it. So I was yeah. like, all right, I'm actually going to have to sit and draw this Build it. from multiple angles and actually sculpt it in 3D space. And yeah, just sitting drawing this praying mantis, I, I learned so much more about them mm. than I ever would have and all these little f- tiny details that I sat there going how the hell didn't I notice this before or sitting in the field staring at it for hours on end and I didn't actually notice that its head was shaped like this mm. or, <laughs> or that its legs joined at this particular angle <laughs> and it, yeah it's, yep. all right my students Get, get ready. You're going to have to start drawing. Have <laughs> workshops. You can, you can blame me. Yeah. <laughs> so this, if people want to come to this museum, it's quite a nice museum. Where yes. is it? So it is in the agricultural building, I think is what it's called. I don't even the, know. The actually. very uh, 
dully named Agricultural Education Building. That is the one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I suppose, one of, if not the newest building on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the museum itself is open from Monday to Friday from 9 to 5. And in the middle of March, we'll have a cafe open again. <laughs> so you can come for a nice coffee and... So if and you walk into a big wobbly brick building and you see a dinosaur, yeah, you're in the right place. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty much it. Yeah, there's a massive dinosaur reconstruction, yeah. and then a bunch of other taxidermied things. And that's the f- sort of public facing side of it. But then there's a whole bunch of collections at the back. What sort of stuffs in the collections? Anything and everything? As much as we can get a hold of, really. <laughs> um, so about one percent of our display, sorry, one percent of our specimens are on display. Yeah. Um, we have, we think, between ten and 20,000 things in the collection. Um, and that ranges from anything housed in ethanol and probably formalin. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, through to taxidermied specimens that were taxidermied using various lovely chemicals, uh, through to bones. Yeah. Um, we have a very, very small paleontology section, which is two or three drawers, really. Um, and yeah, really, we, we try to cover as many Australian organisms as possible. We do have quite a range of international organisms, um, mostly within the ethanol. Um, and other than that, the current direction for the collection, despite the cura- uh, including curation, sorry, is actually expanding it by uh, involving specimens that have been used in UNE publications. Mm-hmm. And you just got yourselves a brand new cassowary. Yes, we did get a brand new cassowary. Well, it's, it's sort of brand new. It's been at UNE for a while. It's, yeah. been, it's been scanned a few times. Uh, and the, the Fear Lab, UNE Fear Lab, the people who are working on that particular specimen. Um, it was found near Townsville and then shipped down to UNE for us to work on, yes. All right. And there, a while ago there was a naming competition for the cassowary. Is that been announced yet yes i can't remember what it's called though (laughs) uh which is really really bad um because in my mind it's cassie the cassowary yeah of course that's Um, what i was gonna put in as my entry Uh, the irish cassowary yeah (laughs) exactly um uh it was announced i think late either late last year or earlier this year uh and i honestly cannot remember which is terrible um but uh, if you go check out the I think UNE Discovery page is where they had that. The Discovery Bulletin, I think, mm-hmm. is where they had named it. But sorry, I can't tell you. <laughs> Whoops. No, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Mm-hmm. But you should really get back to writing. You should writing. be an adult. Yeah. Should... <laughs> before we go, I wanted to bring up ResearchGate. If people want to find out more about your research, they should check out your ResearchGate profile. You're the only person so far on the podcast that has wanted to point people towards their research gate profile is that good or bad and i don't know i've never <laughs> used i have a research gate profile i never really used it well it's it's what is it's kind of like a facebook for yeah science basically um in the age of research that we live uh where a lot of publications are basically held behind paywalls Mm. Um, it's sometimes quite hard to actually get your research out to people who don't have access to those who aren't part of a university or who are retired and adjunct but still don't have access to some publications so for me uh, I 
put up everything that I publish on ResearchGate um, mm. in an attempt to basically subvert that. Because I don't want people to have to pay for my research. I mean, <laughs> hell, I have to pay to get it published sometimes. Yeah. It makes no sense that they take more money from everyone else. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why I'd like, if I were going to suggest anywhere, that'd be where I'd suggest people to go. That's a good thing to point out to people. If you feel the need to pay for access to a scientific paper, the scientists get zero of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, in, in fact, yeah, if you are at a point that you really want access to something, uh, I can honestly just say email the lead author. Yeah. Uh, not only will they be very chuffed that someone's reading their work, <laughs> um, but yeah, they do not receive any funds whatsoever. Yeah. And chances are they actually paid a bit of money to get it published there. So ultimately, you're better off contacting them. Yeah. I want to find someone to do a podcast with about everything that's wrong with academic publishing. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure we could talk about it all day, but Absolutely. I want to get an expert in the field that you know, really get to the nuts and bolts of it. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. People jump online, search Russell Bicknell, research horseshoe crab, yeah. knock and knees, stuff. That stuff. <laughs> you'll, you'll pop up. That's the one. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you guys for listening. Check us out at InSituScience.com or we're at InSituScience on social media. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.